Welcome to Family History Mysteries, a podcast that tells the stories uncovered through family history research, the unexpected stories of everyday people. I'm an avid family historian who's been compiling my family tree for over 15 years, with now nearly 20,000 people collectively recorded in my trees. Welcome to my episode titled Desertion. It is desertion with a question mark, as the person I'm talking to you about today has a lot of question marks against his name and it is a question whether desertion uh, was the basis of the following person's actions. So Alfred Grentel is my person today. He is my husband's great 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 grandfather and just a word of warning there are some racial terms that I'm directly quoting from newspaper articles back in the mid-1800s that aren't accepted today however I am quoting from the time. Now sometimes I come across people in my family tree where I just can't solve all the mysteries that pop up with their lives and I always try to back my research with official documents but Alfred was a tricky one. There were times where I do have more question marks than definite answers. This is Alfred Grintel. He was born in about 1835 in Memel, East Prussia which is now known as Klopedia, which is part of Lithuania. At the time, it was part of Germany. I cannot find an official birth record for Alfred, and this information was gleaned from the Victorian Police Gazettes as to what year he was born and where he was born. It is assumed through family folklore that he was a crew member of a ship and jumped ship, and that is most likely the reason as there are no passenger records, so there's nothing official stating how he came to Australia. Alfred married Margaret Butler in the Trinity Church at Benalla in Victoria on the 26th of May, 1863. They both worked at a station on the Goulburn River near Benalla, so I presume that that is how they met. Margaret was born in 1837 in Tipperary Island and immigrated on the 12th of November, 1862. She was 25 years old, and the shipping records state that she was a kitchen maid and could neither read nor write. The shipping records also state that a Mr. Michael Hussey had paid the immigration deposit for Margaret, as he had with other girls. I'm not sure what the plans were for Margaret, whether there was something that was Sydney-based that she was indebted to, but 12 months later, she was marrying Alfred in Benalla. It's quite possible that Michael Hussey could have been involved with the station near Benalla where Alfred and Margaret met. Uh, however, I cannot find records to substantiate that. By 1864, Alfred had a small farm at Stanhope, Victoria. Their first child, Alfred, was born in that same year and his birth was registered at Kentupna. This is around half an hour from Stanhope. So I'm not sure what happened to the farm. It certainly didn't seem to be in his hands for long. However, there are records saying he became insolvent. Four other children were born to Alfred and Margaret. Margaret Alberta in 1865, then came Christopher in 1867, Thomas in 1869, and Alexander Patrick in 1870. All children were registered in Echuca. That was the nearest large town to Kentubna. It seems that they moved up to that area once their first child was born. At the end of 1871, 
Alfred was a boundary rider at the St Germain's Run. So this was a, a large property. It had frontage on the Goulburn River. And a boundary rider was a man that was employed to go to the outer reaches of the vast property. And from what I can gather, this was mainly a sheep farming district. So he would have been employed to, to go out and check on lambing and ensure that we had flocks of sheep that were kept where they needed to be. The area that this run was in was known as Munduna in 1875, Wyuna in 1877, and then St Germain's in 1879. They had another son, Malik, in 1873, and his birth was registered at Rushworth in Victoria. Why Rushworth, which was a good hour or so from Wyuna, I don't know. On the 2nd of March 1875, Alfred was taken to court by a Mr Mackenzie for a legal detention of a horse that was valued at £12, and this horse was the property of James McBain. Alfred was ordered to immediately return the horse or to pay the £12, and this event was a catalyst to life-changing events for the family. On the 20th of March 1875, Margaret gave birth to a daughter, Mary Josephine. In the same month, Alfred had deserted the family, possibly within days of the court's verdict, which was just prior to Mary's birth. Other family researchers have some theories. One theory is that they believe that he disappeared on his way to a cattle sale in the Stanhope Rushworth area. And how he disappeared, there's three options. One theory is that he was murdered and quite possibly due to the men tracking him down because uh, Alfred was not going to give back the horse or pay the £12. Or he took off with the cattle, so he was in charge of taking the cattle for the property down to the sales and decided that he could benefit from selling the cattle himself. Or the third option is that he did take the cattle to the cattle sales, but he took off with the money and didn't return. By the 1st of June 1875, Margaret had reported Alfred in the Victorian Police Gazette. Remember, she was an Irish girl, came out at the age of 25. She didn't have any family in Australia, no parents and no siblings to help support her. So it was necessary for her to put in the Victorian Police Gazette an ad saying that Alfred had deserted her. The description was... German sailor, 40 years old, 5 foot 9 inches, stout build, fair hair and complexion, beard, whiskers and moustache, gold wire earrings, tattooed both arms and speaks English well. So he sounds like a, a little bit of a rough character if you, you ran into him. I think in those days when a majority were here from English and Canadian areas, he'd certainly look a little rough around the edges. And the other statement in the Police Gazette said that it was believed, he was believed to be working on a station near Benalla. Now, whether Margaret thought maybe he went back to the property that him and Margaret met at, it's seeming like she, she was thinking he might have gone back to, to what he knew. Two years later, the unthinkable happened. Margaret died at the age of 40 years on the 11th of June, 1877. So some reports say that she died from starvation and poverty. 
and others say she died of a broken heart and others report the cause of death as pneumonia. You would have noticed though that the youngest child, Mary Josephine, was not even quite two years old at this point and so she's got a number of children that are left. On the 22nd of August 1877, Alfred and Margaret's sons, Alexander, who was known as Alec, he was aged seven, and Malik, who was aged four, were found wandering about and living on charity, and they were placed into state care. The documents uh, for the children said that it was believed that Alfred was still alive and he had returned to Germany. On August 30th, 1877, an article featured in the Riverine Herald, the Echuca newspaper, titled A Good Samaritan, that gives us a little bit more of an insight into how Margaret got herself into a situation where she had died, apparently, of starvation and poverty. It says, During the sitting of the Land Board yesterday, an application was made by one Michael Kickham for a forfeited block of land recently held by Mr Alfred Grintel in the parish of Undira. It came out in evidence that Grintel had deserted his wife and children under the most painful circumstances. Through, it is alleged, a determination on the part of a gentleman in connection with the adjoining station to drive Grintel from his selection. Mrs Grintel and seven helpless children struggled on with the selection until a few weeks ago when Mrs Grintel died through sheer poverty. Strange to say, during the whole of this poor woman's sufferings, since her husband's absence, the only help she and her family received was from the poor struggling celestial, so this is a term that they used for a person from Asian descent at the time, who at present is employed as a cook on the adjoining station, and this notwithstanding a considerable number of Christians who reside in the neighbourhood. It is said that he, the heathen, gave 20 to 30 pounds in cash to the distressed woman and the family and has not yet put in any claim, fearing less that the children should require whatever the estate may realise. We are pleased to note that the board have determined to protect the humane Gartong's interests and have recommended Kickham's application subject to the payment of value of improvement. So in other words, what has happened in this forfeiture of the lease and the land is that they're saying that if there's any improvements that have been on the land from when Alfred purchased it to when it needed to be forfeited, that that money will pass from Michael Kickham to the children. On the 13th of September 1877, a letter was written to the editor of the Riverine Herald. So this is about two weeks after that article that I just read says the case of Mrs Grintel to the editor of the Riverine Herald. Sir, with your permission, I would crave a little space in your valuable journal to answer a paragraph that appeared in the Herald after the sitting of the last Echuca Land Board. Reflecting on the Christians that lived nearer Mrs Grintel that died under distressing circumstances, her husband having absconded three years previous, leaving her with a family of seven children to support, and that the only assistance she received during these years of suffering and want was from the heathen Chinaman, or words to that effect. Now, sir, without trying to rob the Chinaman of the praise that he must justly deserves, in helping poor Mrs Grintle in her distress, which is well known to myself and others in the neighbourhood, 
I myself most emphatically deny that, that he was the only Christian that helped her. And it turns out that if he himself is a Christian, but the others as well in the district helped her. And during the three years of suffering and want, and some of the tantalising Christians were present with her when she drew her last breath and never visited her empty-handed. We guess from who penned the paragraph referred to emanated and would suffice him to carefully find out the truth before rushing into print again, for a true Christian will always show up where distress and suffering is. Yours much to oblige, J.W.G. Stewart, farmer at Undira. So obviously the the ones that were in the surrounding farming areas that helped her were a little put out that only the, the Chinaman was credited for assisting Margaret. In April 1878, the Yachika community created a Grintle Relief Fund for the children. However, as I just stated, two of the boys from the family had already gone into state care. So whether the Grintle Relief Fund was put in place to allow for funds to be directed to families that possibly took the other children in. In August 1878, it was recorded in a St Germain's Land Selection article that Mr Grintle had left the colony. It also stated that Alfred was employed by the station next door. He would not allow his land to be used for station purposes and as a result, Alfred was dismissed from their employment. In May 1879, a shipping record for the ship Ringaruma that left Melbourne via Hobart Town, the Bluff and onto New Zealand had a passenger listed as Grintle. And I come to a question here as to whether this is Alfred. So the theory behind whether he did actually leave the country, whether that in fact is, is him leaving. However, it is about four years after he left the family. So why did Alfred disappear? Why did he desert his wife and his children? Well, there were bigger things at play and these were uncovered in 1879 that explains possibly why this occurred and led to the downward spiral of this family. There was a Royal Lands Commission inquiry and this inquiry in 1879 investigated if the squatter system needed improvement and it also included if there should be more Crown land available for pastoral purposes for the sole purpose of the state of Victoria gaining more revenue. So in this they went and visited all farming areas of Victoria, miles and miles over several months, and spoke to landowners, spoke to squatters, and so on. So in subsequent election and qualification committees, one of the things that was investigated was if dummies had been used to purchase land for pastoral purposes. Now, this, this was illegal. I'm going to pause for a moment with Alfred's story just to give you an explanation of what I mean by a dummy in terms of land selection in Australia at that time. So in the early days of European settlement in Australia, much of the land was acquired through a process known as squatting. Squatters were people who simply took up residence on Crown land without official permission or license. The squatters would clear the land, they would build homes and other structures such as fences or barns, and over time, the squatters would develop the land into farms and run cattle or sheep on it. The squatters were usually men who had come to Australia in search of new opportunities. Many of them were wealthy individuals from England 
who used their new land acquisitions as a source of income. So by the mid-1800s, squatters controlled vast tracts of land across Australia. Then as the British colonies in Australia grew, more and more people began to move into areas that had previously been occupied by squatters. So to try and regulate this situation, the colonial government introduced a system known as selectors. Under this system, settlers were allowed to apply for a licence to occupy Crown land. The selector would then pay an annual fee to use the land. The Free Selection Acts, which were introduced in the 1860s, allowed selectors to buy their land outright after living on it for a certain period of time. This helped to create a class of small landowners in Australia. The selector system was introduced in an attempt to bring order to the process of acquiring land in Australia. However, it wasn't without its problems. Many selectors found it difficult to obtain the necessary licence, and many more found that the costs associated with maintaining their farms were too high. And as a result, many selectors abandoned their farms. And I suspect that that's what happened with Alfred with the Stanhope property. And he seemed to have a little more luck with the Wayuna property up until the time that he deserted. However, there's a, another theory that we'll go through. So in the late 1800s, a new method of acquiring land emerged, and this was known as peacocking. Under this system, wealthy individuals would send agents to an area to select blocks of land on their behalf. These agents, known as peacocks, would then arrest small huts or dummies on the land to mark their claim. The agents would return to the city, sell the land to other people, often at inflated prices. This system allowed speculators to make a quick profit from the sale of the land that they hadn't even seen. While peacocking was technically illegal, it was a very common practice in the late 1800s, and many of the large estates that were created during this period were the result of peacocking activities. If land did go to auction, wealthy squatters would hire people to bid on the land in order to give it back to the squatters, and these fake bidders were known as dummies. So again, just like peacocking, the use of dummies in auctions was also illegal, but squatters still tried to use them to retain the control of land. And what the next documents are going to illustrate is that there's quite, quite possibly Alfred was a dummy. So he was, his name was used to have the land. However, there was an agreement struck between the, the landowner and the station manager where essentially it was Alfred's land only in name. So this is where it comes to an article that I found that refers to the 1879 committee and the discussion about squatters and investigating across Victoria whether things were above board. So it says on page 193 of the minutes with reference to the selection of Mr David Alexander in the parish of Undira, Mr McLean stated, this selection is enclosed with the adjoining Goulburn River bends. Alexander was employed on the St Germain station when he selected and acted as overseer on the said station for 12 months after selecting. I am informed that nearly all of the improvements, chiefly buildings and fences, were erected by station hands under the manager's instructions, Mr John McKenzie. The clearing and cultivation are of temporary nature 
and the whole improvements are not worth more than £150. I'm just going to stop for a moment because you will notice that the name of John McKenzie, it popped up when we were having a look at information to do with Alfred uh, going to court. So John McKenzie, who is mentioned uh, in this paper, is in fact the Mr McKenzie that took Alfred to court in regards to the horse stealing charge. Goes on to say that the late Mrs Grintle on the adjoining selection stated to me that her husband and Alexander selected as dummies or agents for the pastoral licensee, Mr James McBain, at the request of the manager, Mr McKenzie, as he desired to secure the land, owing to it being for many years a horse paddock for the station, and owing to Grintle refusing to allow the station stock to graze on his selection, he was dismissed from the station and subsequently driven from his families and from the colony by Mr Mackenzie. Grintle has not been heard of since then, over two years ago. Mrs Grintle died from poverty about three to four weeks back, leaving seven helpless children, ranging from the ages of two to 13, quite unprovided for. I do not consider that Alexander is a bona fide holder. The following evidence was also given. Who was it that told you this man was a dummy? Mrs Grintle, on the adjoining block, the wife of one of the two that selected in favour of the station near to the preemptive right of the St Germain's run. Nearly all of the improvements were erected by station hands under the instruction of the manager of the station, Mr John McKenzie. Alexander was called before the local land board at Shepparton to show cause against forfeiture, as I had reported that he was not a bona fide holder. Are you going to prove that Mackenzie selected this land in the interest of Mr James McBain? He answered yes. To verify my previous statements, when John Mackenzie selected this land, 320 acres, he was then manager of the Wyuna station, and in other parts of the colony at the time, Strict orders were given to prohibit any person in connection with the station or the manager from being allowed to take up land by selection. Mr John McKenzie, it appears, received permission from Mr James McBain to take up this block of land, 320 acres. John McKenzie held that and after a time he put on certain improvements and made application to have a lease for this land. After he sent the application form, sworn, to that he had fulfilled the necessary conditions, he subsequently sent a notice to the department to say that he had not, he found, fulfilled the residence conditions. Mr Mackenzie was asked if he had ever selected any land before. His declaration showed on the face of it, on oath, that he had not selected any land in the colony before. I, John Mackenzie of Wyona, overseer and farmer, do hereby solemnly and sincerely declare on oath that on the 31st day of January 1873, I placed a conspicuous cairns of stones. A can of stones is where somebody has come across land that they consider not to be owned by others and they will place a pile of stones there as a marker so they can go back to ensure that that is the land that they had prospected in order for it to be registered. 
with notices therein at the corners of the allotment for which I hereby make application under the Land Act of 1869, as more particularly described hereunder, that I have not taken up a preemptive right, that I have not selected any under any previous Land Act or Acts the maximum number of acres allowed by this Act, that no selection made by me under any previous Land Act or Acts has been forfeited or cancelled for the evasion or the provisions of any such Acts, and that the area I now desire to obtain would not, if added to the area already selected to me, uh, exceed 320 acres, and I am not under 18 years of age. This was signed, sworn, and went to the Lands Department on the 3rd of February, 1873. And so they asked him, do you prove that this is false? He said, yes, by the papers I can. He distinctly swears that he has not selected before. He was then called upon and the particulars here are stated under the guidance of the local land board and he handed the following paper. John Mackenzie selected 320 acres, the parish of Undira in February 1873 and makes the declaration that he had not selected under any, any previous land act. On the 17th of May 1876, he applied for the necessary forms to enable for him to apply for a lease. The forms were sent to him on the 25th of June 1876. He wrote to the department stating he believed he has not sufficiently complied with the residence condition and therefore asked for the sale of his selection by auction at 20 shillings per acre with the value of improvements in his favour. The application was remitted at the board of Uchika for consideration. Mr Mackenzie there stated that he had selected 97 acres under the Land Act in 1865 and after paying three or four rents for the same had forfeited it being too small. He said that he had told the then Minister of Lands of this and he had received permission from the Minister of Lands to make the full complement of 320 acres. He also produced a note from Jay McGregor confirming this, of which, however, I have no record of in the department. Crown Lands um, Bail of Tatum stated that Mackenzie had selected other lands besides this 97 acres, um, but he stated that he no, had no recollection of it and had only got receipts for one selection. So the board made a recommendation for further inquiry. And then on the 27th of July, Mr Mackenzie wrote to the Surveyor General stating that on his return home, he found that he'd also selected another 67 acres. On sourcing the books from the office, Mr Mackenzie had made the following selections in 1865. Jay McBain, Wyuna, 97 acres. And then another one sold by auction, W Wilson, Wyuna, 178 acres and another one, W. Wilson and Company, Wyuna, 130 acres, which equals 408 acres of land. The first selection, he paid seven and a half years of rent. On the second selection, he paid six years of rent. And on the third selection, he paid one year's rent. The only lease that was executed was for the second selection. So all were under the Act of 1865. The first selection is now owned by Mr McBain. So the question was, what was the ultimate disposal of 
Mr. Wilson's property. And it then came to light that Mr. Wilson was Mr. McBain's partner. So what they're saying is that out of those three um, purchases, one was with Mr. McBain and two were with Mr. Wilson and Mr. Wilson was in fact the business partner of Mr. McBain. So the question was asked, are we to understand from all of those 1895 selections, um, they were passed in part into the hands of Mr. McBain and Mr. Wilson and that the whole of them went to Mr. Wilson. Did not this man make a declaration that he had not selected land before? And the answer was yes. They then asked, and has he been prosecuted for that? And the answer was no, he has been elevated to justice of the peace since the exposure. James McBain examined the witness. I really do not know what to say in reply to the statements made by Mr. McLean. I am at a loss to understand his motive in repeating these charges. He mentioned that he never saw me before. I never saw him till this inquiry, but the whole statement is so inconsistent with the facts of the case as far as I'm concerned that I can only give a distinct denial as to my connection. In, there's been no connection in any way to these selections. They asked the question, we have traced the land up to Mackenzie. The answer was yes. Do you state here now that you had connection with Mackenzie's operations for the purpose of getting that land and that land is not held by Mackenzie on your account? I can say that I have never had any interest and have done now and I never expect to have any in the land selected by Mackenzie, his son, Mills, Alexander or Grintle. So he's effectively saying, James McLean's effectively saying he had nothing to do with the purchases of any of those lands around that St. Germain's run. So then it goes on to say, we have gleaned the following particulars from records from the Titles Deeds Office. The first parcel of land, number 780, uh, owned by Christina Taylor, and in brackets, John McKenzie's sister. So Hugh McKenzie of Pachuca, livery stable keeper and Edward Tilly of the Rochester Hotel keeper are registered as proprietors of the said land as they are executors in the probate of the will of Christina Taylor who died on the 29th day of January 1879 and probate was granted on the first day of May 1879. So what they're saying is that Christine Taylor was uh, the owner of that parcel of land, Mackenzie's sister, and then seen being passed on um, due to the probate on her will. The next parcel of land, 500, number 528, Hugh McKenzie is registered as a sole proprietor uh, within this land, dated 23rd of September 1881. It's transferred by Hugh McKenzie to James McBain on the 17th day of January 1882. So it's clearly saying that James McBain now owns part of that property or did own but prior to this investigation. George Mills, 320 acres adjoining the above allotments in the parish of Undira, County of Rodney, that it had moved to James Shackle of Echuca on the 30th of September, 1878. It was then transferred to James McBain on the 10th of September, 1881. 
So again, we have these 320 acres, uh, which was the land that Alfred had originally. Uh, James McVeigh owns it by 1881. John McKenzie of Wyona Sheep Farmer is now the proprietor of an estate in the parish of Undira, the county of Rodney, dated the 15th day of November 1880. In addition, a mortgage from Hugh McKenzie to James McBain and James Belfour in 1878. So what the title deeds office uncovered uh, was the exact opposite of what James McBain was stating, that he had absolutely nothing to do with any land sales, didn't know anything and didn't hold any, um, and that clearly shot that out of the water. The next part in the volumes is uh, referring to John McKenzie. So it says, John McKenzie of Wyuna Farmer, 320 acres. Um, there is an auction in the parish of Undira, County of Rodney. The nature of endorsement is a mortgage on the 15th day of August, 1877, to go from John McKenzie to James Belfour and James McBain. So again, we've got evidence of a property being passed between John McKenzie and James McBain. It will thus be seen that at the very time Mr McBain solemnly declared to the Royal Lands Council that he knew nothing of the selections, that he had no interest in them, that he had never had any interest in them and never intended to have any, he and Mr James Balfour held a mortgage over the land held by John McKenzie, his station manager and he subsequently became the owner of the land taken up by one of his boundary riders, George Mills, and an adjoining block, which was Alfred's, containing 320 acres that was selected by the station manager's sister, Mrs. Christina Taylor. So interesting to note that he didn't outright purchase it himself. He's gone in a roundabout way, chosen his sister, different surname, hoping that possibly things weren't being uncovered and people would join the dots. We will now leave our readers to judge how far Mr Madden is justified in stating that Mr McBain could never have had anything to do with any shady transaction and also to form their own opinion concerning the power behind the throne that is likely to overshadow Mr McLean's efforts to obtain justice. And this was... That whole report was uh, published in two Melbourne newspapers in December 1882. So after all that, to sum it up, it is alleged in the above proceedings that Alfred and another station worker, Mills, were used as dummies for the landowner and the station manager to have selections of land uh, in their names, effectively making on paper Alfred and his co-worker Mills owners or selectors of these par these parcels of land. When Alfred refused to let the landowner and the manager, Mr McKenzie, run stock on his 320 acres, um, obviously there, were, there was uh, a difference of opinion. They came to clashes and it seems at this point that's when uh, McKenzie has driven him away. So firstly, we know Mackenzie and McBain were both involved in the horse stealing charge and took Alfred to court in March 1875. By the June, Alfred had disappeared. So going back to the family talk with the theories behind Alfred's disappearance and desertion, it seems Alfred took off really quickly. 
And so there's two theories behind this. Number one, was he murdered? It did remove the problem. Mackenzie and McBain may have been worried that Alfred might be might have decided to go to the authorities, particularly after the statement under oath that McBain gave in 1879, that this was completely the opposite of what McBain had stated under oath. So if Alfred Grentel had gone to the authorities and said, this is the problem I'm having, these men are trying to take over, then it would have really blown up everything, considering too that McBain was steadily climbing the ladder in terms of uh, politics and legislative council. So that's one reason. The other reason or the other theory is, did Alfred, as part of his job, take the cattle to the sales and decided, right, well, I'm going to teach these men a lesson. They're trying to push me out of my land. I'm going to cut my losses. I'm going to take this cattle that's owned to them and I'm going to sell it and I'm going to get the proceeds of this and run away with it. We don't know the character of Alfred Grentel. We don't know whether he would be the kind of man that could walk away from his wife and children and leave them to fend for themselves. Or is it the other theory where he had no intention of leaving his wife and family? He was intending to fight it. These men had other plans. There is more than one mention in the records alluding to Alfred leaving the colony, though, so we can't ignore that, that there are little clues along the way. We've got him possibly leaving on a, a boat from Melbourne on the Ringarooma in May 1879. All it does state is Grintle, though. There's no Alfred or A indicating that it's quite likely him. And the other hole in that theory is more than four years since he actually deserted his wife and children. So why would he wait four years to leave the country? Did he run, knowing the men had already taken him to court? Did something else come about where maybe the heat was on him and he decided to have that money in his pocket and return to Germany? So you'll, you'll now know why I have put desertion as a question mark, because we really don't know whether Alfred did actually desert his wife and family or whether there was something more sinister at play and he was rid of. What happened to Margaret and Alfred's children? So as you know, uh, at the time of Margaret's awful death, the youngest was two and the oldest was 11. And it, it wasn't like it is today, where if that circumstance occurred and there were no close living relatives, that they would be taken care of you know, in the foster system and, and well looked after. In those days, there, there was state care, which was either foster homes or going to industrial schools. So I thought I'd just give you a bit of an idea of, of how these children fared in their lives. One little thing too is that throughout this period now, the spelling changes. So Alfred Grintel was spelt with an A, so G-R-I-N-T-A-L-L. -L. And with the children, quite possibly because they were brought up by others, the spelling had morphed into an E, so G-R-I-N-T-E-L-L. -L. And so when I've done my research, I will put in both spellings just to ensure that I've been able to find the, the most information possible. The first child, the oldest child, Alfred, was known as Fred, and he resided in Nathalia in Victoria as a young man 
but he lived most of his adult life in Urana in New South Wales and he worked as a labourer at a property called Barragunda. He was buried in Griffith, New South Wales. There's no records uh, that he married. Child number two, Margaret Alberta Grinchell. She married a clerk, George Kitely, in Hay in New South Wales. Not long after they married, they moved to Sydney. And unfortunately, George deserted Margaret not long after the birth of their third child in 1892. There are no police gazette reports on this. However, it's quite clear when looking in newspaper articles that Margaret was living in a completely different part of the country to George at this point, and George got himself into a spot of bother. So there's quite a range of newspaper reports in South Australia outlining fines and jail time for George. He's drunk and disorderly, he's got no fixed address, and he's very lost around that time. He did remarry in 1922, but he was still married to Margaret. So for George, he committed bigamy. Margaret went on to have another partner and she had Matthew Dalton as her partner. It seems from the census records that around 1898, they met because they had a son, James Malick Dalton in 1899 in Golgong in New South Wales. And James's birth certificate states that George Kitely is the father. Obviously, she's still married to George, so she had to put that. So in 1899, George Kitely, however, was in Adelaide and he'd been in Adelaide for several years by that point. Margaret lived in Junee and Griffith with her son James and his wife after about 1929. And this was about three years before Matthew Dalton's death. So it seems that they had separated at that point and, and lived in separate residences. She died in Sydney on the 19th of March, 1948, and she was the grand age of 82. The third child, Christopher, lived in Merrigan in 1883 when he was just 16, and this is just near Wyuna. So that makes me think that possibly a local family uh, took Christopher in. He was only nine when his mother died, so the fact that he, he's close to that area uh, makes me assume that's what's happened. A year later, he was recorded in the census in Deniliquin, New South Wales. He married Louisa Selms in Hilston, New South Wales in 1888 when he was 21. And he became a successful farmer, owning quite a bit of land at Hilston, Mildy and West Wyalong in New South Wales. And he died at 87 years old on the 29th of March, 1955. The fourth child, Thomas, comes up in the records as purchasing land at Hinty in New South Wales on the 4th of December 1890 when he was 21. He married Lucy O'Brien on the 22nd of February 1892 in Urana, New South Wales, and he held land at Oaklands, and which was near Urana. By 1897, he also held land at Kareen, which was near Korowa in New South Wales. In July 1898, a newspaper article outlined how a fire destroyed his cottage at Dalesdale. Dalesdale's a very small farming uh, community near Oaklands in New South Wales. By August, he had deserted Lucy and their four children. So within a month, once the cottage was destroyed, he left. In the Police Gazette, it said that he was believed to have gone to the Lachlan River. 
His occupations were listed as shearer and bullock driver. He was tracked down by police. He was arrested and fined at Tumbarumba in New South Wales by the December within three to four months of deserting. Uh, he was found. He obviously returned because Lucy and him had a fifth child in 1901. So three years after he had left her. His later years were spent in Wagga. He was a contractor and a carrier around Wagga, New South Wales. And he died in March 1929 in Wagga, aged 59 years old. Interestingly, he left his will to his second youngest child, Christopher. Lucy, at this time, was recorded at living at Koroa with their eldest daughter, Christina, around the time of his death. So it's quite likely, it's looking like they had separated, possibly some time earlier before his death. So Christopher Jr., who he left his, his will to, he actually died as well before the probate was issued. So then the estate was handed over to Christopher and Lucy's youngest son, Malcolm. The fifth child, Alexander, he quite possibly was born Alec, A-L-I-C-K, bringing some of the background of German uh, names coming in. And he first comes up in the records as a ward of the state. So I mentioned earlier in the podcast about the children being left in a destitute way. And so on the 22nd of August, 1877, he was found wandering about and living on charity in Echuca, Victoria. He was fostered out and a newspaper article reports that he ran away from his foster family at aged 11 on the 18th of July 1881. His foster family lived in North Fitzroy in Melbourne. He must have been found because he was sent to an industrial school in Bendigo. An industrial school uh, was the next level up. So boys that may have been put into foster care that didn't behave would be sent to an industrial school, which was basically a home where they taught them manual skills. And since the inquiry into child abuse, no such thing exists anymore due to the neglect and abuse that came about from those schools. So it'd be no surprise that you hear that he absconded at the age of 12 from this industrial school. So on the 5th of September, 1882, the Police Gazette said that it was believed he was heading to Melbourne. He again pops up in the Police Gazette in 1891. There's a warrant issued to him due to him being absent from his service to a dairyman. By 1898, he's 28 years old and he's listed at living at Dalesdale, New South Wales, so near where his brother has property, and then later at Holbrook in New South Wales. He was a mail carrier for many years until he retired, and then he lived at Doctors Point, which was near Albury. He also lived at Korowa and Howlong, both in New South Wales. He died in Wagga at the grand age of 91, and his occupation at the time of his death was a shearer, and he did not marry. Child number six, second youngest of the family, was Malik. Malik was also known as Malcolm. His birth certificate states his name as Malisk, M-A-L-L-I-S-K-E. So again, the, the German names are popping in. He was found on the same day as Alexander or Alec in Echuca with the same reports. He was placed into state care. He seemed to have behaved himself better than Alec. The only record is shown is that he's released from state care at 11 years old on the 22nd of August, 1884. 
hard to believe when we look at 11-year-old children today that the state considered that an 11-year-old child could be released and be able to fend for themselves at that age. He seemed to go okay because the next time we find a record on him, he's working on the railways in Corowa. He's 16 years old and he marries Margaret Cummings at Nathalia in Victoria in January 1895 at the age of 21. And Malik is my husband's great-great-grandfather. He worked as a miner in Karawa and a miner in Rutherglen as well at the start of the 1900s. And by 1916, he was living at Holbrook. In 1923, he commenced employment at Cockadagong Station, 27 kilometres out of Jerildry in New South Wales. And after 1930, he resided in Urana, where he lived for a number of years and died at the age of 70 on the 8th of February, 1943. The youngest Mary married George Dalton, aged only 14 years old, in Charlieville in 1889. George was Matthew Dalton's brother. So remember that Mary partnered with Matthew Dalton. And so I assume that's how Margaret met Matthew. George was a carrier and a teamster who worked between Queensland and inland northern New South Wales. Mary and George had eight children. Uh, they were born in many varied towns across New South Wales and Queensland, including Mosgill, Condoble and Weewa and Baraba in New South Wales, due to George's transient occupation. Mary was a boarding house keeper at West Maitland in New South Wales in 1908 when she was 33, and she continued this for at least five years. So whether she craved once her children were growing up to have somewhere more settled and then George continued with his occupation. Mary died in 1928 in Redfern, Sydney, aged 53. With her children, three that I'd like to mention, one son died in World War I in France. Another son, Christopher Dalton, he also served in World War I, but he then came back and worked on the railways and became involved in the Australian Workers' Union. He rose through the ranks and became a member of the Labor Party and was part of the New South Wales Legislative Council. And another son, Thomas Dalton, was also worked in the railways, also joined the Australian Workers' Union, was a member of the Legislative Assembly as well, but he was also a member of the New South Wales Parliament. And he was the Labor member for Sutherland Shire in Sydney. So I'm sure that Margaret and Alfred would have been extremely proud to have grandchildren that were part of the Labor Party championing for workers and ensuring that everyone had a fair go. So I hope you enjoyed my story about Alfred Grentel. And again, you know, these mysteries uh, sometimes remain mysteries, but nevertheless are very interesting. If you have a mystery that you would like shared on my podcast, please get in touch. Go on to my Facebook page. And also, if you need help with your family history, you might uncover some interesting stories like I have.